Welcome to How We Work from Work Human, a podcast about the trends, issues, relationships, and phenomena that shape our workplaces. I'm Mike Lovett. It's February 2022. And if I had to guess, many of you completed your annual reviews in the last few weeks. It's a time to get valuable feedback, look back on accomplishments, and set goals for the year. And as helpful as that can be, it should not be the only time that kind of conversation happens at your company. In fact, research shows that to prevent turnover and improve employee engagement, it should be happening a lot, at least monthly, but even weekly or bi-weekly. Our guest on this episode is a proponent of having conversations and delivering feedback with humanity whenever you can. Her name is Kim Scott, and she is the author of the New York Times bestseller Radical Candor and Just Work two books that make the case for consistent, honest communications at work and what needs to happen in order to make sure they're experienced by everyone in the office. Kim Scott, welcome to How We Work, the podcast. I want to get started right away. Your book, Radical Candor, has become a bit of workplace lexicon. It's almost, it's a term now. It's more than a book title. It's a term people use. <laughs> In fact, I'm told that people don't even know it's a book. So I'm glad you do. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how you know you've really succeeded when your book transcends becoming a book. How did you decide on that term? And then how did you come to define it in writing that book? So the t- it's funny, I was giving a talk about Radical Candor, which I wasn't yet calling Radical Candor, at a conference, Silicon Slopes. And I was in the elevator with Dan Pink, who had given a talk just before me, who wrote Drive and To Sell as Human. He's a great, great writer. And he's just got a new book out about the power of regrets. Anyway, so Dan said, you know, I really like your talk, but you need a better title. And I said, well, help me. And somewhere between the first floor and the 14th floor, we came up with Radical Candor. So a big shout out to Dan Pink. So that's how we came up with the term, which I think has been great in that it helps, it kind of sounds cool and it's helped sell books. I think it's a dangerous title in that sometimes people will charge into a meeting and they'll say, in the spirit of Radical Candor, and then they will proceed to act like a garden variety jerk. And that's not the spirit of Radical Candor. That's the spirit of what I call obnoxious aggression. So here is one of the origin stories of Radical Candor. This happened to me. You want to hear it? Are you ready for a story? It's a long one. Okay. Okay, go. So this happened to me shortly after I joined Google. I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO about how the AdSense business had gone, was going. And I walked into the room and there in one corner of the room was one of the founders on an elliptical trainer wearing a bright blue spandex unitard and toe shoes, just kind of stepping away. Not what I I can see from your face, not what you would expect to see in the room either. It's parody. I mean, that is like tech parody. (laughs) It's like, yeah, no, it's like something Dave Eggers would write, but it really happened. And then in the other corner of the room was the CEO who was doing his email and he was so intent on his computer, it was like his brain had been plugged into the machine. So probably like everyone listening in such a situation, I felt a little bit nervous. How was I supposed to get these people's attention? Luckily for me, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers we had added over the last couple of months, the CEO almost fell off his chair. He's like, what did you say? That's incredible. Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more engineering resources? So I'm thinking the meeting's going all right. In fact, I now believe that I am a genius. 
And I walked out of the room when the meeting was over, walked past my boss, and I'm expecting a high five, a pat on the back. And instead, she says to me, why don't you walk back to my office with me? And I thought, oh, wow, I screwed something up, and I'm sure I'm about to hear about it. And she began the conversation on our walk, less than two-minute walk, by telling me not what had gone badly in the meeting, but what had gone well. But of course, all I wanted to hear about was what I had done wrong. And eventually she said to me, you said, um, a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And with this, I sort of breathed a huge sigh of relief and made this brush off gesture with my hand. I said, yeah, you know, it's a verbal tick. It's no big deal, really. And then she said to me, I know this great speech coach. I bet Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once again, not really getting the hint, I made this brush off gesture with my hand. I said, no, I'm busy. Didn't you hear about all those new customers? I don't have time for a speech coach. And then she stopped. She looked me right in the eye and she said, I can tell when you do that thing with your hand, I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say, um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now she's got my full attention. And some people might say it was mean of her to say I sounded stupid. But in fact, it was the kindest thing she could have done for me at that moment in my career. Because if she hadn't used exactly those words with me, And this is really, this is a crucial point. She would never have used those words with other people on her team or perhaps a better listener than I was. But she knew me well enough to know she didn't use just those words with me that I would never go see the speech coach. So after she said that, I did go see the speech coach and they recorded me. Never, never try to listen to yourself being recorded. It's so painful. As someone who hosts a podcast, I know yeah, that you, pain Yeah, you listen well. to yourself. Yeah. I try never to listen. To it's <laughs> awful. <laughs> but it is awful. So I realized when I was forced to watch these videos of myself giving presentations that I did literally say um every third word. And this was news to me because I had been giving presentations for my whole career. I had raised a bunch of money for several different startups giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. And this really, I suddenly felt almost like I had been marching through my whole career with a giant hunk of spinach between my teeth. And nobody had had the common courtesy to tell me it was there. And it really got me to thinking, why had no one told me? And also, what was it about my boss that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me? And I realized when it came to my boss, it boiled down to two simple things. She cared about me, not just as an employee, but as a human being. And she was willing to challenge me directly. So a lot of people like, how do you know she cared? When I moved from New York to California to take the job at Google, I didn't know anyone out here and I was very lonely. And she could tell I was lonely. And she introduced me to a book group. I'm still friends with a number of those people to this day. When my father was diagnosed with cancer, I was devastated. And she could tell that I was devastated. And she said, you go, get on a plane, fly home to Memphis. Your team and I will come up with your coverage plan. We've got your back. That's what good teams do for one another. And that was the kind of thing that she did, not just for me, but for everyone who worked directly with her. She couldn't, of course, do that for all 5,000 people in her organization. No matter how talented you are, relationships don't scale, but culture does scale. And when a leader treats their people with that kind of care, it's much more likely that their people in turn are going to treat their people with that kind of care. And that does scale. So it created a real culture of caring. 
But it wasn't all sunshine and roses, of course. I knew, I also knew, in addition to the fact that she cared about me, that if I screwed up, she was going to tell me in no uncertain terms, even if it might hurt my feelings in the short term. Of course, she cared about my short-term feelings, but what she was really focused on was my long-term growth. And she was going to focus on that. So that was, it seems so sort of simple, caring and challenging. Like, what, why is that so radical? And yet, I don't know about you, Mike, but I've never met anyone in my career who's really comfortable either giving or receiving feedback. <laughs> it's hard. It's, yeah. 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 It's really, really difficult. I don't know why they call that a soft skill because there's, <laughs> it's really difficult really hard. So one of the things that I did to try to make it a little bit easier was to give words not only to what happens when you get it right along both dimensions, but what happens when we fail along one dimension or another. So sometimes we do remember to challenge directly, but we forget to show that we care personally. And that I call obnoxious aggression. That's why I said when people storm in and act like a jerk, that's the spirit of obnoxious aggression. And obnoxious aggression is a big problem. It harms other people. It often sends them into fight or flight mode, so you're wasting your breath. But there's another more subtle problem with obnoxious aggression, which is the fact that because most of us are actually pretty nice people, when we realize we've landed there, when we realize we've acted like a jerk, I don't know about you, but it's instinctive for me to back off on challenge directly. What I ought to do is what I would be better off doing is moving up on the care personally dimension. But I'm so horrified that I've landed there that I back off. It doesn't matter. It's no big deal. I'm sorry. And now I'm in the worst place of all, manipulative insincerity. I'm neither caring nor challenging. And that's where passive aggressive behavior, political behavior if obnoxious aggression is front-stabbing, manipulative insincerity is backstabbing. that's where all of the worst parts of a workplace come in, worst, most toxic parts of culture come in. But the fact of the matter is the vast majority of us make the vast majority of our mistakes in this last quadrant, where we do remember to show that we care personally. This is not where the drama happens, but this is where the majority of mistakes happen. We do remember to show that we care personally, and we're so worried about not hurting someone's feelings that we fail to tell them something they'd be better off knowing about in the long run. And that's what I call ruinous empathy. So we want to move away from ruinous empathy and towards radical candor, or if you prefer, compassionate candor. Yeah, it doesn't sell books as well, does it? Yeah, no, it doesn't sell (laughs) books as well, but it might be a little bit more clear. There were two things in there that caught my ear. The first is the designation that feedback is given as a soft skill. You mentioned this in the webinar to pretty much anything interpersonal where you're communicating with somebody else. It's just, oh, that's a soft skill. Why is it important to not view this as a soft skill, giving feedback? Yeah, yeah. I mean, building relationships at work. Because if you cannot communicate well at work, if you cannot build good relationships at work, you won't do good work. You won't achieve the results that you're trying to achieve. So not only will it be painful to interpersonally, it'll, it'll also make itself manifest in your results. Whenever I have failed and whenever I have watched managers fail to really solicit feedback, they don't know when they're making mistakes and that trips them and their teams up. And when they fail to give, and remember, giving feedback is about, or giving radical candor is just as much about 
praise as it is about criticism. You want to focus on the good stuff. But if you're not taking a moment to share your appreciation, verbalize your appreciation for the things that are going well, to share gratitude and praise, I think, is a form of gratitude, then you're not going to get as much of the good stuff. And if you don't take a moment to tell people what they need to do less of, to share the critical feedback, then you're going to get too much of what's not good. And it's going to hurt not only your relationships, but your results. There was another part, which is you said that the feedback that you got about saying um every third word was only given because there was some sort of established relationship already there. And you mentioned some of those key moments that really let you know my manager cares about me as a person when things hit the fan. Those are pretty big life events. But in that sort of daily, weekly, monthly grind of work, how did your manager show or how have you found managers to show that they care in those little moments on a more consistent basis? Yeah. And there's an important nuance to that story as well. I think even if my boss hadn't known me as well as she did, she still would have told me. So it's tempting to think, oh, I'm going to hang out in ruinous empathy where it feels safer. And after I build a relationship, then I'll move over to radical candor. And all you do, if that's your approach, is to build feedback debt. So sometimes you have technical debt, other times you have feedback debt. And that can be really damaging to a relationship. So you want to remember that your job here is to recognize another person's humanity in the moment. And that doesn't have to, you know, it's, it's much easier if you have a deep, long relationship with someone. But even if you're having lunch with someone for the very first time and you're just getting to know them, you know if they have spinach in between their teeth that you should tell them <laughs> that that's actually the seeds of trust are sown in that radical candor. Because if you don't tell them, they're going to go to the bathroom later and look in the mirror and say, gosh, why didn't Kim tell me about the spinach? Doesn't she care? Like she was going to let me just go into that next meeting with this big hunk of spinach in between my teeth. And so I think one of the stories I tell about radical candor was radical candor that I got from a perfect stranger. I had just gotten a puppy and I loved this puppy. I adored her so much that I had never said a cross word to her. And I was taking her for a walk one night and she jumped in front of a speeding cab and I pulled her out of the way in the nick of time. And this man, a perfect stranger, looked at me and he said, I can tell you really love that dog. That is all that man had to do to move up on the care personally dimension. So if you're working, I can tell you really care about that project. And then he says to me, but you're going to kill that dog if you don't teach her to sit. And then he points at the ground and he says, sit, dog, sat. I had no idea she even knew what that meant. And I kind of looked up at him in amazement. And he said to me, it's not mean, it's clear. And then the light changed and he walked off, leaving me with words to live by. So I think remembering that it doesn't have to take forever, but you want to take just a second to get on the same side of the table with the other person to say, you care about this thing. I care about this thing too. And I want to help you succeed. And those are the real moments that these, what I call moments of management. One time I was talking to Andy Grove as I was writing Radical Candor, Andy Grove, who had been the CEO of Intel, and a journalist was writing about great mentors. And someone had told this journalist about some advice that Andy had given him that changed the trajectory of his career. And Andy said to me, you know, I hesitate to say this to the journalist, but 
I don't even remember that person. (laughs) But he said, I'll tell you something about my approach, which is they had been sharing a cab on a business trip in from the airport. And he said, whenever someone asked me a question, you know, I try to recognize them as a person and listen to the question and give an answer, (laughs) tell them what I thought. And he said, it's so simple, but just remembering that the person in front of you is a human being and you should recognize their humanity in the moment. And often that can be the beginning of something, either a good relationship or something that really helped, like that person on the street. I'm sure he doesn't remember that interaction with me. But it changed the trajectory of my of my management career, actually. I, like, it was really words to live by. So I think remembering that those moments are so important. Later, at, at a different moment in my career, I was working for someone. This is when I was at Apple. And I tended to do what people say you, quote unquote, shouldn't do. I would go grab my lunch and eat it at my desk because I was very busy. I had young kids. I had to leave the office on time. And my boss came in and he said, why do you know everyone? You know everyone. And yet you always have lunch all by yourself. (laughs) And I said, it's not about having lunch. It's not about the things that you do after work. It's about making sure that you're establishing a connection when you're working together. You can do it so quickly. You know, it's fast. It's free. It just takes a little bit of emotional energy, which emotional discipline, which sometimes we're short on. Make sure you get enough sleep, eat a good breakfast, you know, that kind of stuff. Good life lessons. Yes. In your follow-up to Radical Candor, Just Work, you looked at the underlying systemic issues in the workplace, racism, sexism, cultural identity issues that have made Radical Candor a privilege for some in the workplace. It can be difficult, even risky for some to practice. So what should companies, what should leaders do to make clear to employees that they are all in on Radical Candor? And how do they create a safe place for everyone to participate in it without fear of repercussion. Yeah, it is really one of the, I tell you, if you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of it. And uh, and indeed I did. So the book, Just Work, was born shortly after I had published Radical, or St. Martin's Press had published Radical Candor. And I was giving a talk at a tech company in San Francisco and the CEO of that company is someone who I like and respect enormously. I'd worked with her for the better part of a decade and one of too few black women CEOs in tech. And she pulled me aside after the presentation and she said, I'm excited about Radical Canner Kim. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture I want. But I got to tell you, it's much harder for me to put it into practice than it is for you. She explained to me that as soon as she would offer anyone, even the most compassionate, gentle criticism, she would get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true. And she helped me realize sort of four things at the same time. The first was that I had failed to be the kind of colleague that I see myself as, that I aspire to be. I had failed to notice the extent to which she had to show up unfailingly cheerful and pleasant at every single meeting I had ever been at with her, even though she had what to be ticked off about at work, as we all do in that period of time. And I just, I hadn't understood the toll. And I could have, if I'd been paying more attention, I could have noticed the toll and and been a better upstander. The second thing I realized was that 
I had been kind of in denial about the things that had happened to me as a woman in the workplace. I realized that in some ways, Radical Candor was like a guerrilla feminist text. But why was I being clandestine about a book (laughs) called Candor? It was kind of ironic. uh, And I hadn't even realized it myself. So I'd been in denial about my role as a person who's been harmed by these kinds of workplace injustices because I never really wanted to think of myself as a victim. And I think we have a strange attitude towards victims in our society. So there was that. Even less than I wanted to think of myself as a victim that I want to think of myself as a perpetrator. But the third thing that she helped me understand was that I had sometimes been biased. I had sometimes, I had often hired teams at one point when I was at Google Every single person working directly for me was a white man over six feet tall. Like, what was that about? (laughs) And I mean, I laugh about it, but it's not funny. It was actually sort of a form of discrimination. So I realized that I had been a, a perpetrator. And last but not least, I realized as a leader, I had failed to address some of these systemic issues. And so... When you use a word like workplace injustice, it sounds very, sounds like a big monolithic problem that's impossible to solve. And so one of the things that I wanted to do in Just Work is to break the problem down into its component parts so that we can solve the problem. Like these are fixable problems. And so there's a few simple things. I mean, there's a bunch of things that I think leaders ought to do, but there's a few really simple things. There's a few good places to start. The first is you want to understand the components of the problem. So there's bias, there's prejudice, and there's bullying. And these, I think, are the root causes of the problem. And then when you layer power on top, you get discrimination, harassment, and physical violations. And so you want to make sure that you're understanding what you're dealing with and how you can solve it. So, for example, the solution to bias is going to look very different from the solution to prejudice is going to look very different from the solution to bullying. And so in order to address bias in every meeting, every day at every company, I promise you, there's some moment of bias happening. And so how can we disrupt bias? I think people tend to think, oh, bias is inevitable. It's impossible. I may as well just give up on it. But no, bias is a pattern. We human beings are pattern makers. And if the pattern is destructive, we can change the pattern. So let's change a destructive. Bias is fundamentally a destructive thought pattern. And so one of the things that my co-founder, Tria Bryant, and I do is we work with teams to put in place a system of bias disruptors. So there's three parts to disrupting bias on your team. The first is to have a shared vocabulary. What are the words that your team will actually use when they notice bias? And whether the bias is directed at them or they are observing bias directed at someone else. So Trier and I like to wave a purple flag. So we'll say purple flag or we'll wave one if we're on video. Another team that we work with likes to hold up a peace sign and they they say peace. And that's a good way to sort of invite people in. Another team says, I don't think you meant that the way it sounded. Another team says bias alert. The words matter, but I don't want to give a script because if I give a script, then your team are not going to use the words that I suggest. You've got to pull the right words out of your team. So shared vocabulary. The second part of bias disruptors is really dedicated to the people who are causing harm, to the perpetrators of bias, because it's natural. I don't know about you, Mike, but when someone points out to me that I've done something or said something that's biased, I feel deeply ashamed. 
and therefore defensive, and I'm not going to respond in the best possible way. So this is where giving people a little bit of a script can actually help. You want them to mean the script, but you want them to have some words to fall back on so that they can move through their shame to a better place. Because you want to do what you can to take shame out of this game. And so the first thing is to sort of say thank you, no matter what. And then either thank you, I get it, I'll work on not doing it again, or thank you, but I don't quite get it. Can you explain to me after the meeting? And the second part is really hard. I mean, when I do something that I realize has harmed someone else, but I'm not quite sure what I did wrong, I'm ashamed because I've harmed someone and I'm doubly ashamed because I'm ignorant on top of that. And that's difficult to move through. So we want to help people move through those moments. And I think when there's kind of a shared norm on how to respond, then what we're saying is these are mistakes that we all make and we're helping each other get better. We're all getting better together. And that's really important. And then the third part of bias disruptors is really just a shared commitment. If we get to the end, let's promise. In fact, let's do this on this podcast. If we get to the end and you haven't flagged anything biased that I've said, or I haven't flagged anything biased that you said, then we probably missed something or we didn't feel comfortable. So let's commit. If we get to the end and we haven't waved a purple flag, we're going to wave a purple flag. Okay, deal. Nothing so far. We're 27 minutes in, so hopefully we didn't miss anything in that 27 minutes. Yeah, I can't think of anything, but I'm now now we have a shared commitment. So yes. we'll we'll find something in the next 30 minutes. Okay, great. Now, the last question I have for you is this. I see a very strong overlap and you mentioned it before in between gratitude and radical candor. They share a lot of those same elements, specificity, humility, an established relationship for those things to really take off. And looking back at your experience through the process of writing about it, or even your experience as a leader of teams, member of teams, what are some examples that stick out to you of those two things working in tandem? Yeah, to me, radical candor, especially the praise part of radical candor, is... But the criticism is also a gift. But when you offer people praise, when you give voice to the things you appreciate about working with them, then it does so many good things. It helps you feel more optimistic. It helps them feel like you're noticing the good stuff. You're not only noticing the bad stuff. And it shows everyone on the team what is possible, what success looks like. And then you get more people doing the good stuff and hopefully fewer doing the bad stuff. So there are a few simple, simple ways. One of the greatest and most popular things that Google did was this peer bonus program. And this is one of the things that your tool allows anybody to do because there was a lot of, uh, Google had a lot of engineers, so it took a fair amount of infrastructure. Most companies can't build this on their own, so it's much better to use your system. But it allowed someone who, let's say you were working with a marketing person and this person went above and beyond you're the product manager, they're the marketing manager to help you market your product in a new successful way. So now you can not just say thank you and give voice, but you can actually give them something. You can give them a gift and the company will pay for it, right? So at Google, it was cash. It was, I think, a peer bonus was usually $100. And this made a huge difference to people's willingness to give praise to one another. Another example of that, when I was... I started this company called Juice, and then I took this to Google with me as well. But at team all-hands meetings, 
I would bring in this stuffed orca. And the stuffed, I think you're not supposed to call them killer whales anymore. But the idea was so-and-so really killed it on this thing. And by the way, I got some feedback, which I'm going to share. So I'm going to wave a purple flag on myself right now. Oh, wow. Okay. So the problem with saying you just killed it is that in a world where some of the people on your team might come from countries where genocide is happening right now or has happened, that's not a good analogy. So anyway, you could bring in a big stuffed, let's say, puppy. (laughs) Okay, great. But anyway, so-and-so did a great thing. And what I would do for the stuffed puppy is sometimes I'd put 20 bucks on the puppy's head and then everybody would clap and whoever got the loudest applause got the puppy for the week to put on their desk. And this was really helpful because sometimes people didn't want to play along with this praise game. And when you put 20 bucks on the head, that gives people plausible deniability. Ah, I just wanted to make sure that so-and-so got... It wasn't a hope because people were so desperate for the $20. I hope we were paying people enough. But it is really... There have been all these interesting psychological studies done about the reasons why people are reluctant to praise one another. And one of the more interesting ones was about movie critics. It turned out that people thought the movie critics who panned the movies were smarter than the movie critics who loved the movies. And so I think we need to move past that. In order to give gratitude, to be very public in our appreciation for one another, it can be very helpful to have a tangible reward, as well as it's great just to say thank you. There's nothing wrong, but in fact, that's always the place to start. But one of the things that leaders can do and that individuals can do is participate in these gratitude programs. It's interesting you brought that up of like being unsure of the impact. Back in November, we did a podcast about gratitude. We talked to Emily Heafy from UMass Amherst who studies this kind of phenomenon in the workplace. And I asked her, I was like, why isn't this commonplace? Like, it seems like a really beneficial thing for everyone involved. How is this not taking off? And she said simply, people don't think it works. They have this idea in their minds that it really won't make a difference if I say thank you. If I go out of my way, it's like, is it really going to change things? And your story just then and the stories before all say it does. It does make a market improvement. And she called them positive redirections. When you give people praise or you give them a view of themselves that they often don't have, it gets them to maybe redirect how they think about themselves. And she described herself being called a leader. And that was something that she never, ever thought about herself. Then all of a sudden, someone said, no, I see a lot of those tendencies in you. And so leadership opportunities opened up. And when she might have said no before, she was now saying yes to those. And it redirected her into a way that she never would. Yeah, it's really important. But I think also, let's cut ourselves some slack. It's hard. We talk a lot about why it's hard to give criticism. It's also hard to give praise. Sometimes you feel patronizing. In fact, Andy Grove told me that he had been CEO of Intel for about three years when he came to work one morning and someone had snuck in in the night and nailed up a big sign in his cube that said, say something nice. And he realized that this had been a big failure of his leadership, that he wasn't giving enough appreciation, sharing enough appreciation with people. And he really worked hard to change it. And he said, again, that part of the reason why he didn't was that it felt patronizing. And he realized that it was an act of generosity and also a good leadership trait. So he realized he really needed to do it. 
Russ Laraway, who is the people leader at Qualtrics, also who I started a company with and worked with at Google, he's also a, an avid little league coach. And he said that he kept what he called the book. And he would look for three things each player did right in every game. And he would read it out at the end of every game. And he said the players were eager. If he was like not getting on the book, somebody would say, Coach Russ, where's the book? We need the book. And so it's, I think it's an important part of working with the team and helping people. There's a wonderful book called The Art of Possibility. And your job, especially as a leader, but also as an employee, is to paint a picture of what's possible. And praise and gratitude are really much more important tools in your toolbox of painting a picture of what's possible than criticism is. All right. That is a great note to end on. Don't worry. We're going to be back with Kim Scott to answer audience questions from our webinars. But thank you for finishing up part one. Thank you to Kim Scott for joining me on this episode of How We Work. And thank you all for listening. For more stories, insights, podcasts, and videos about how we work, head to workhuman.com. Follow us on all social channels at WorkHuman and subscribe to our newsletter in the show notes. How We Work is produced by me and edited and mixed by Rob Valois. We will see you with a new episode in a few weeks.